Hello and welcome to The Ballpark, a podcast from the U.S. Centre here at the London School of Economics. I'm Chris Gilson, and I run the U.S. Centre's blog on U.S. politics and policy, USAP. This week, we have another extra inning for The Ballpark for you. Today, I'm in conversation with Professor Stephen Walt, the Robert and Renee Belfer Professor of International Affairs at the Harvard Kennedy School of Government. We hosted Professor Walt at the LSE on the 21st of October 2019 for the event, Can America Still Have a Successful Foreign Policy?, which is part of our Phelan Family Lecture Series. Ahead of the event, I spoke with Professor Walt about the difference in foreign policy approaches in the Trump administration versus the Obama administration. We also discussed his new book, The Hell of Good Intentions, and talked about why he thinks American foreign policy since the Cold War has been a failure. My first question is, how would Donald Trump's current foreign policy compare to that of Barack Obama's and previous Republican administrations? Well, Certainly, uh, there is a world of difference in terms of presidential style. And in fact, you couldn't get a bigger contrast between someone like Obama and someone like Trump. Uh, Obama, you know, notoriously cool, deliberative, uh, looking at all sides of every angle, working a policy process very, very carefully. Uh, Donald Trump, impulsive, angry, uh, firing off tweets uh, in all directions, uh, the very antithesis uh, and not interested in policy, not really interested in expertise. Uh, to a large extent. Uh, he famously said shortly after uh, he was inaugurated, you know, I'm the only one that matters. Uh, these other appointees really, you know, it doesn't matter if we fill those positions or not. So in terms of style, they're, they're quite different. Also, Obama had uh, good relations with almost all of America's allies, got on well with the leaders of, you know, Great Britain, Germany, Japan, etc. Trump has notoriously quarreled with lots of countries. Interestingly enough, he seems to get along better with people like Kim Jong-un than he does with Justin Trudeau uh, or uh, earlier Theresa May. So their style is totally different. But the actual substance of American foreign policy has not changed as radically as you might think. Yes, there are some changes, probably most notably in terms of trade policy, where he's been very protectionist and uh, imposed tariffs on a variety of countries or threatened trade wars of various kinds. That's probably the biggest change. But, you know, despite all of the Sturm und Drang you hear from Trump, we're still in NATO. In fact, the American commitment to NATO has in some ways increased. We have a contentious relationship with Russia, despite Trump's interest at times in trying to warm that relationship up. In fact, the relationship's gotten worse during the Trump administration. The United States is still committed to the same set of Middle East allies, uh, Egypt, Israel, Saudi Arabia, etc., that we had before. If anything, he's just increase those uh, relationships. And we still have a confrontational uh, approach towards Iran, which was true in the Obama administration. Uh, Obama is often accused of, you know, being a of appeasing Iran. That's ridiculous. Uh, it was under Obama, for example, that we used cyber weapons to attack their nuclear enrichment uh, program. Uh, it was a quite confrontational policy towards Iran. Um, and that's true under Trump as well. The Obama administration pivoted to Asia to deal with China. Trump has continued to be uh, relatively confrontational towards China. So if you step away from the style, which is really quite different, uh, there are some really quite uh, enormous differences. And finally, Trump clearly is less interested in this whole idea of promoting democracy than any of his predecessors are, less interested in human rights. But in some respects, his policies really aren't that different. Uh, we criticize under Trump 
uh, China and Iran for their human rights policies, but we don't criticize Israel, Saudi Arabia, Egypt, other American friends. And that was true of the Obama administration and the Bush administration and the Clinton administration before that. So even though Trump is in many ways a, a president, the likes of which we've never seen before, the substance of American foreign policy has not changed as much. Okay, thank you. So you've argued, I think, that U.S. foreign policy over the last 25 years, since the end of the Cold War, really, has largely been a failed one or an ineffective one. And how has it failed or been ineffective, and who has it failed? Uh, well, uh, the easiest way to see this, I think, is to compare where we were and what our expectations were in 1993, say, when the Cold War was finally over, beginning of the Clinton administration, and then compare that with where we are today. Uh, in the 1990s, the United States was actually on good terms with all the major powers, including Russia and China. Uh, the United States uh, had a prosperous economy that was uh, going uh, like gangbusters. Uh, Iraq was being disarmed. Iran had no nuclear centrifuges in operation in the 1990s. Democracy is spreading uh, worldwide. Uh, globalization is proceeding apace, largely under American auspices with the uh, formation of the World Trade Organization. Uh, the Arab-Israeli uh, conflict might be coming to an end. We have the Oslo Peace Agreement in 1993. The United States is in a perfect position to then broker a final uh, peace settlement between Israelis and Palestinians. And finally, the American military uh, appears to be unstoppable. We've won the Gulf War very easily. Uh, we uh, are able to bring the fighting in Bosnia to an end. So everything looks great. You can almost argue the wind is at our back. You know, people are very optimistic. Great power politics is a thing of the past. We're going to have a new era of peace and prosperity. Now let's fast forward now to 2019, right? Relations with Russia and China have steadily deteriorated. And those two countries, of course, have begun to cooperate quite closely again. Democracy is in retreat worldwide. According to Freedom House, which is a New York-based think tank, uh, 2018 was the 13th consecutive year in which the level of global freedom declined. Uh, in fact, The Economist magazine, uh, in its annual Democracy Index a couple of years ago, downgraded the United States of America from a full democracy to the category of flawed democracy. Uh, well, so that's not so good. Uh, India, Pakistan, uh, and uh, North Korea have all tested nuclear weapons in the last 25 years, despite American opposition. And Iran has gone from having no enrichment capacity at all to having the capacity to build a nuclear weapon if it ever wants to. It hasn't decided it wants to, but it could do it. It has all the technological capabilities now to do that. Uh, the United States, of course, is attacked on September 11th. It responds by invading first Afghanistan and then Iraq. And both of those wars end up being costly quagmires, costing trillions of dollars to the United States. And suddenly the American military, though still very capable, doesn't look quite so unstoppable in various places. The United States tries to broker an Israeli-Palestinian peace, and it's, all, it's a miserable failure under Clinton, under Bush, and under Obama. The two-state solution that all three of those presidents said they wanted to see happen is now further away than ever probably impossible. And lastly, uh, globalization didn't deliver as promised. Inequality rose in uh, Western societies, especially in the United States, and we ended up creating a much more fragile financial system, as we all learned in 2008, 
when the collapse of mortgage markets in the United States triggers a global recession. So again, if you look where we were in 20 or in 1993 and look where we are in 2019, it's pretty hard to argue that there's a lot of successes in here. And the key is the United States is not responsible for every one of those, not wholly responsible, but our fingerprints are on a lot of those developments, right? And the most amazing part is that the United States kept trying to do these various things, even though what we were doing clearly wasn't working. That's why I argue that it's mostly a failure, not without a few successes, but the failures are much more numerous and much more consequential than the few success stories. So this kind of flows on quite well, actually, from from that last uh, answer. That so, what would you say has been the price of U.S. primacy and and foreign policy in general since the end of the Cold War, both domestically for the U.S. and and abroad? Well, domestically, um, you know, the United States is a very wealthy country and very secure country, so it can afford to do a lot of dumb things in other parts of the world without feeling the consequences immediately. But in terms of consequences at home, uh, we have lost uh, thousands of people in some of these wars, uh, and that matters. It's not like World War Two, it's not like even the Vietnam War, but it is not trivial. The numbers, you know, well into the thousands of killed and wounded now. Uh, second, best estimates are that the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan were going to cost the United States between four to six trillion dollars. Once you add up the full life cycle costs, you know, the health care for disabled veterans, things like that, you add it all together, you get up to about six trillion. And we could have done a lot of other things with that money. Uh, in terms of fixing things in the United States itself, lowering taxes without exploding deficits uh, or other foreign policy priorities that we might have wanted uh, to pursue. Uh, third, I think we've done enormous damage to the American brand. Uh, the United States has never been a perfect country, and American foreign policy has never been perfect. But uh, adventures, like many of the things we've done in the Middle East, have tarnished the American reputation, both for sort of being on the on the good, the good side, you know, when you torture people, that doesn't tend to make you look good, uh, but also for being competent. I mean, it's very important that Americans be seen by others as knowing what they're doing, being basically able to deliver as promised. And we didn't do that in Iraq. We didn't do that in Afghanistan. We didn't do it in terms of our management of the economic uh, affairs of the country. Uh, you know, back in the 90s, people thought it was the wizards of Wall Street. And the United States knew how to run a capitalist economy better than anybody. You had to become like America. And of course, once 2008 hits, you suddenly realize that that set of institutions was actually deeply corrupt, not as competent as it had pretended to be. And all of that, I think, uh, has has hurt the United States. And then finally, uh, there's the level of political polarization you see in the United States today. And I don't think that's a, a direct consequence of American foreign policy, but it has been exacerbated by what's going on in foreign affairs. Because there have been relatively few successes and a lot of failures, it's been possible for essentially both parties to have their opportunities to point fingers at the other, right, which further poisons the political environment in the United States. Okay, thank you. So can you talk a bit about um, the U.S. foreign policy community you describe in your book and what their role has been in promoting the U.S.'s global activism? There, there's a phrase now that gets used in the United States a lot, uh, the blob, uh, to describe the foreign policy elite or the foreign policy establishment. This was a phrase coined by uh, 
Ben Rhodes, who was deputy national security advisor in the Obama administration. I think of the foreign policy elite as comprising several groups. It's the people in government who work on foreign affairs, National Security Council, Department of Defense, Department of State, uh, things like that. It's the surrounding penumbra of think tanks and lobbies in Washington who try to shape foreign policy in a variety of different ways, writing books, writing articles, papers, holding hearings, etc., to try and influence what people in government are doing. I would add the media uh, as well, not every member, of course, but those who write about foreign affairs. And finally, people like me in academia who also weigh in to try and shape how Americans understand the world and sometimes make recommendations on what we ought to do. And in the book, I argue that within this foreign policy establishment or foreign policy elite, there's a very powerful bias in favor of global activism or a strategy that I call liberal hegemony. Uh, the idea that the United States should use its power as the indispensable nation to lead the world and in particular to move the world in the direction of the classic liberal values. We should be trying to spread democracy, human rights, the rule of law, open markets far and wide including as many countries as possible. Uh, it also, by the way, assumes that we should do this peacefully if we can, but if necessary, we should be willing to use military force to do the same thing. This has been the policy of the Clinton administration. Think of NATO expansion, for example, as an illustration of that. Uh, it's the policy of the Bush administration, clearly the attempt to transform the entire Middle East by invading uh, Iraq. And it was also the policy of the Obama administration, if in a somewhat more gingerly or, or restrained, uh, restrained fashion, but they were still uh, clearly committed to that set of ideals. I argue that foreign policy world likes this strategy, both Democrats and Republicans, in part because they genuinely believe in its principles. There's some, some real idealism in there. They think it's good for the United States. They think it would be good for the rest of the world if they all became more like us. But notice this is also a very ambitious strategy that flatters the sense of self-worth and gives the foreign policy elite a lot to do. Uh, so uh, in addition to increasing their budgets, I argue that uh, American grand strategy since the end of the Cold War has been a full employment policy for the foreign policy establishment. You've kind of touched on this a bit already, but what would you say is wrong with the American diplomatic corps and actually the, that foreign policy community you've just mentioned more widely? And what are some ways it could be solved? Well, I'd, make, I'd separate out two parts here. If you think of America's diplomatic corps, actually many of them, and I'm thinking mostly of the State Department here, many of them, and particularly the professionals, the long-serving foreign service officers and other civil servants, I actually think are some of the best people in the management of American foreign policy, in part because they tend to have a much more realistic sense of what American power can accomplish. They're pretty good at knowing the parts of the world that they're assigned to, knowing what's possible and what's not possible. It is often the political appointees who come in on top of them that cause more uh, of the trouble. So I tend to be less judgmental towards uh, you know, much of our actual diplomatic corps. And the problem with them is that they're often ignored. <laughs> that we don't pay as much attention to diplomacy. We've tended to rely more on the Pentagon and more on tools of coercion rather than tools of persuasion. As for the rest of the sort of foreign policy blob, I think its biggest problem is uh, two central problems. 
One is that there's just been a much too narrow a range of opinion within that world. Uh, the way you get ahead in that world is by staying within the acceptable consensus, this belief that it is America's destiny to lead the world. If you stray outside that consensus, your likelihood of getting ahead in Washington goes way down. So it's been a pretty narrow set of views uh, expressed within that. And the second problem, of course, is lack of accountability, that it doesn't really matter how badly one screws up or what the source of your screw-up is, you can always get reappointed in a subsequent administration. People think of American politics and Washington as being this horrible you know, cockpit where people are fighting to the death all the time, this nastiness. But within the foreign policy elite, there's actually a remarkable degree of, I would almost argue, civility and willingness to forgive and forget. Uh, and it's in part because of people know that, you know, if you judge others, they're going to judge you just as harshly. And in part because everybody knows everybody else. It's uh, in some respects a bit of a club. And as a result, there's a whole variety of things you can screw up and still be considered a reliable, important expert. Uh, just a perfect example would be someone like John Bolton, who has been wrong repeatedly throughout his career, was one of the leading advocates of invading Iraq. Um, pays no professional price whatsoever for helping uh, produce one of the great disasters in American foreign policy and indeed becomes national security advisor to Donald Trump. And you could multiply examples like Bolton an infinite number of times. And so, you know, there's too much consensus and there's no accountability. And that doesn't uh, uh, generally let you improve your foreign policy performance over time. So how does that trend of, of sort of the idea of that failure is sort of tolerated. How does that square then with President Trump's desire to, quote, drain the swamp? It sounds very swampy. And uh, well, Trump said, of course, he would drain the swamp. The problem is uh, twofold. You know, he was opposed uh, back in 2016, both by the Democratic foreign policy elite, not surprisingly, but he was also opposed by almost all of the Republicans. Uh, there was these two open letters signed by over 125 former senior Republican foreign policy experts declaring Donald Trump unfit for the presidency. Well, of course, he couldn't use any of them. So in a sense, you know, the A team and the B team on the Republican side, most of them got excluded. Now, Trump turns out to be very hard to work for, which is why he's fired so many people or why people uh, just quit. But he began his presidency with hardly any really experienced voices. He had a couple of generals like James Mattis. Uh, he could put in a secretary of defense. His first national security advisor, another retired general, set a record that will never be broken by staying in the job for about two weeks before he was forced to resign because he lied about a bunch of his uh, dealings before being uh, before being appointed. And then Trump has had to try and find people. Well, who does he eventually have to start relying upon? He has to rely on people who are from the establishment, but who didn't oppose him. That's where Bolton gets his job. That's where H.R. McMaster got his job. That's where the current national security advisor got his job. He could rely on someone like Mike Pompeo, who was a congressman who'd been very aggressive on certain foreign policy issues and was very hawkish on Iran, but hadn't opposed Trump. And in a sense, what you see in the Trump administration is the challenge that any president faces when you try to drain the swamp. Who are you going to rely upon? If you rely upon people who aren't of the Washington world, they're all going to be inexperienced. They won't have done these jobs before. They're going to make a lot of rookie mistakes, right? If you rely upon people from inside the establishment, they're going to try and 
put you back in the policies that you oppose. I just might add, this is the same problem Barack Obama faced because he was in some respects slightly out of step with most of the rest of the Democrats on foreign policy. He was the only senior member of his cabinet or his foreign policy team who had opposed the Iraq war. Hillary Clinton was in favor of it. Jim Steinberg, who was one of her deputies at state, was in favor of it. Most Joe Biden, his vice president, had supported the Iraq war. In that sense, Barack Obama was uh, off slightly at one remove, and he, in a sense, had to fight the whole time with his own team, who wanted him to be more activist, wanted him to be doing more. Trump faced that problem, but even more so, and doesn't have the depth of knowledge or the sensitivity to craft a strategy on his own. So in your book, you promote uh, an alternative strategy called offshore balancing, if that's right. Mm -hmm. Could you give a brief overview of what, what this means and how is it different to what America is doing now? Well, offshore balancing should be very familiar to anybody in Britain because, of course, it was the strategy Britain followed, uh, particularly vis-a-vis -vis Europe, uh, when uh, Britain was a you know great imperial power. But basically, it's a strategy that uh, gears itself primarily to the balance of power in the world and focuses on key strategic areas. I might add it's a strategy the United States followed for most of the 20th century, from the time we became a great power uh, to uh, the collapse of the Soviet Union. And the basic idea is that the United States is extraordinarily secure in the Western Hemisphere, has no powerful rivals anywhere nearby, has these two enormous oceans that protect us not from every conceivable danger, but from many dangers. And the only thing that could really threaten uh, American security and, and autonomy would be a rival great power with equal capabilities, so a country as strong as us, particularly if that country was as secure in its neighborhood as we are in the Western Hemisphere. Because if a country, say, unified all of Europe and then didn't have to worry about any rivals nearby, it could start projecting power around the world the same way the United States does. Why can the United States get in trouble all over the world? Because we're not worrying about defending our own territory. We're not worried about Canada suddenly taking Minnesota uh, away from us. So because we don't want to have to worry about another country projecting power all over the world, including into the Western Hemisphere, the United States throughout the 20th century worked to prevent any country from dominating its region the way we have dominated the Western Hemisphere. But when we could, we tried to pass the buck to others, get them to do the work of preventing that from happening, and we step in only when others fall short. The United States is the last great power to enter World War I, we only do it when a German victory appears like it might happen. Right, we're the last great power to enter World War II, when Germany appears to be dominating. And Japan, of course, is trying to take over in Asia. So we try to pass the buck when we can. The Cold War is different, though. We have nobody to pass the buck to. We don't think Europe or any countries in Asia can stand up to the Soviet Union without our help. So then the United States has to go onshore permanently, which is what NATO and our commitments in Asia have been all about. Well, now the question is, what about today? Today, the only conceivable peer competitor to the United States is China. So the United States should be focusing most of its effort on making sure China cannot dominate its neighborhood. We're not trying to overthrow China. We're not going to conquer it, divide it, or anything like that. We just want to make sure that China is not able to push us out of Asia and then compel the other countries in Asia to basically follow its lead. We don't need to be doing very much, if anything, in Europe because Europe doesn't face any security challenges it can't meet 
if it gets its act together. We shouldn't be involved directly in the Middle East because every time we send troops there for any lengthy period of time, they cause more trouble than they solve. So we should be focusing on Asia out of the Middle East militarily and gradually ending our security partnership with Europe and letting Europeans take care of their own defense. That's what offshore balancing would mean today. Brilliant. Professor Stephen Walt, thank you so much for speaking to us today. Lots of fun. Thank you. Stephen Walt is the Robert and Renee Belfort Professor of International Affairs at the Harvard Kennedy School of Government. He has previously taught at Princeton University and the University of Chicago, serves on the editorial boards of Foreign Policy, Security Studies, International Relations, and Journal of Cold War Studies, and is the author of works including The Origins of Alliances and Taming American Power, The Global Response to U.S. Primacy. So that's it for this extra inning of The Ballpark. Check out the LSE Public Lectures and Events podcast feed for the recording of Professor Stephen Walt's recent event, Can America Still Have a Successful Foreign Policy? Thanks to Professor Stephen Walt for joining me in this episode. This extra inning was produced by Chris Gilson and Michaela Herman. The Ballpark podcast is supported by the Phelan family. Our theme tune is by Ranger and the Rearrangers, a Seattle-based gypsy jazz band. Look them up at rangerswings.com. To listen to all of our previous episodes, just enter LSE Ballpark into your search engine of choice. You'll find us, you're free to listen to, and like lots of other podcasts, we're ad-free. We'd love to hear what you think about the show. Email us any feedback at uscenter at lse.ac.uk or send us a tweet at lse underscore us and tell your friends about us. The content and opinions expressed in this podcast do not reflect those of the US Center or of the London School of Economics. Thanks for listening.